All right. Well, the children are going with their leaders this morning, and we who are staying in here, we're going to return to a series we started several weeks ago. It's a series pertaining to the seven churches of Revelation. It is Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. But it's been several weeks since we had a chance to talk about the seven churches. We have talked about five of them so far of the seven. But as a bit of a recap, let's just look at the map and find out exactly where we are and recall some of the churches that we've already talked about. The first church you may remember that we started with many weeks ago was Ephesus. Ephesus was known as the church that lost its first love. From there, we traveled north about 25 to 35 miles and arrived at the church of Smyrna. It was the second church. It was known as the persecuted church. We also then continued our counterclockwise motion as we looked at the seven churches and went from the second church into the third of Pergamum. Some translations actually say Pergamos, but it was labeled and known as the compromising church as it began to entertain some false doctrine. Next on the list, fourth church was Thyatira. That was labeled as the dark church because not only did it begin to practice some things of false teaching, it began to actually engage in those things. It didn't just entertain it and kind of contemplate the idea of it. It actually practiced it. And then last week, or last time we had a message, wasn't last week, but the last time we had a message, pertained to the fifth church, which was Sardis, and it was known as the dead church. So five churches we have talked about so far the seven. Obviously, that leaves, as you can see, the clockwise rotation, Philadelphia, which is today. And then next week will be Laodicea, which will complete the series. But today we concentrate on Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, which tells us about the church at Philadelphia. Now, if you've ever had any kind of previous teaching or studies pertaining to the seven churches, of all the churches would listed within the seven, if you recall any of those by name, it might truly be Philadelphia. And that could possibly be because we recognize that city and name because in our country, we have a city also by the same name. Now, it should be stated that the Philadelphia we have here in Pennsylvania in the States and the, the Philadelphia mentioned in Revelation chapter 3 have nothing in common at all. They have nothing to do with one another. In fact, a quick Google search will give you all the information you ever wanted and more pertaining to either one of the Philadelphia. So Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, that we might think about first, was actually founded by William Penn in October of 1682. Isn't it interesting the fact you can get on Google? October of 1682, William Penn found the city of Philadelphia. Penn was a Quaker who found a city based upon religious freedom. Interesting piece of information I found about Penn is that he was knowledgeable, almost nearly an expert, in two languages, that of Latin, but especially that of Greek. So he named the city based upon two Greek words, philio, meaning love, and adelphos, meaning brother. Put them together, became the city of brotherly love, and became Philadelphia. Now, in comparison, the city of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3 was not named after the Greek words, but rather was named after the king of Pergamum, Adelus Philadelphus, who had the city built. The city was then named Philadelphia, but it established a well-known church that lasted up until the 13th century and lasted well into the 13th century until the Turks 
decided they didn't want anything to do with old civilization and had the church killed off. Now you know some things about each Philadelphia that maybe you knew a little bit before, but maybe you can now share with somebody at the coffee house and buy them a cup of coffee as you entertain the knowledge about Philadelphia, right? But nonetheless, as we receive information about Philadelphia, what's most important for us is written what's in God's Word in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. We're going to find that the church in Philadelphia is returned to the Word of God, which then makes it as labeled a revived church. Or some call it the faithful church. Let's read the text and begin to explore why we call it a revived church. Stand with me if you're able to. As we look into Revelation chapter 3, we stand to honor the reading of the word. And we find the word tells us in Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And so the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens. I know your works, in verse 8. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and you have kept my word and have denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come down, come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. Finally, verse 13, repetitious phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, Father, Lord, we come before you this morning, Lord, receiving the text you've given us for today as we begin to return to our series pertaining to seven churches. Lord, the entire tent, as we know from the series, is to be able to see how these churches relate to modern day, to Christians in the day that we're living. And I pray, Lord, today that we gather here today with the intent of seeing how this text, this message, this letter sent to the church so many years ago applies to us still today. So we invite your spirit to lead and to reign and to guide and direct us. Let's open our hearts, our minds, Lord, and our ears and just hear the word you've given for us today. So then let us be thankful for what shall happen here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you heard me say it once already. They're probably going to say it very, a few more times before the series begins to end and the message for today. But Philadelphia surely is known as the Revived Church. But to properly understand why Philadelphia is called Revived Church, we have to backtrack just a little, especially since it's been several weeks since we actually had anything pertaining to the series of the seven churches. So recall then that two of the previous churches, namely Pergamum and Thyatira, have led the church into a very dark time. Pergamum, which is the third church, as we've seen located on the map, entertained false teaching. Again, they entertained the thought of false teaching. The false teaching that they were entertaining 
according to the text we had pertaining to Pergamum, was that they I followed the idea of the Nicolaitans as well as the doctrine of Balaam. We explained those things those particular weeks. But they entertained that false teaching, which began to take the church into a dark period. But by a tire the fourth church not only entertained it, as we mentioned earlier and studied many weeks ago, but actually accepted it, began to practice it. Way past toleration, began to practice truly the false doctrine, and it was so bad, if you recall about Thyatira, that they were compared to the wicked Jezebel, and they joined in the fortification at that particular time in church era. But if you remember, we didn't just stop there. Yeah, they led us into the dark ages with Pergamum and Thyatira, but then recall again rather quickly that as we went into the time of the dark ages and the church kept following the, the, the uncorrupt, the, the corrupt doctrine, the church was continued to be in decline. It got to the point where we get to Sardis, who again was pronounced as the dead church. All because, if you will, they began to teach and preach things that did not pertain to the Word of God. They deviated from the Word of God. They accepted the worldly standards and began to preach it and teach it. It put them in a downward spiral. It put them in a slow death to the point where Sardis was truly a dead church. But unfortunately, as we gather here today, we need to recognize that this trend of deviating from the standard given to the Word of God and accepting the world's standards, is becoming way too commonplace. Much more than sometimes we even recognize. It's been some time ago that I was given an article by one of the church members in Evansville when I was their pastor. The title of the church of the article was, was titled Baptist Group Ejects Church for Pastors Gay Rights Support. Again, the title of the article was Baptist Group Ejects Church for Pastors Gay Rights Support. So the Baptist church in question was part of Fairmont Baptist Association in West Virginia. Not a local church, but a church in West Virginia. It seemed a pastor, whose name was Valerie Giddings, endorsed the local human rights ordinance protecting sexual orientation or sexual preference. In a release statement, she said, Many progressive Christians reject outright the idea of sexual preference and believe that any homosexual activity or behavior is a direct violation of God's law. Well, her statement really kind of demonstrated her support of a practice, same-sex marriage, that is strictly prohibited by God's Word. But it's becoming all too common theme in the modern day of seeker-friendly churches because they begin to totally accept this, as we mentioned in previous messages. But as much as that was the situation where Pergamum and Five Towers accepted world standards, it actually gets worse in this particular case. You're thinking maybe, well, how can it get worse? If, if a church is beginning to deviate from the Word of God, what possibly could be worse than the preacher claiming up in the pulpit? Well, here's how it got worse. The pastor, again, Valerie Giddings, after all that happened, the article says she tendered her resignation as a result of the local Baptist Association objecting to her statement. But here's the thing. The church would not accept her resignation. In a special call meeting, they voted to retain Pastor Giddings. And rather than accept her resignation, 
they voted at an assembly together to leave their association and to, to align with another. And remarkably, they found another association to align with. The article stated they left their association, Fairmont Baptist, and they began to align with Rochester Region American Baptist Churches, which evidently is a much more worldly influence association and contradicts the word by his preaching and teaching. So they found a new home and continue to want to preach and teach what they thought was the word of God, but it is not. But I use an illustration to tell you that this kind of stuff is happening all around the world today. It's becoming so commonplace that churches today are becoming so much like the world, it's hard to tell the difference between the world and the church. It's hard to tell the difference. Which is why it then is so refreshing to all of a sudden see a Philadelphia. Because in the midst of the corruption that was witnessed at Pergamum and Thyatira with the dead church that pronounced at Sardis and with the corruption we see in the world today, there still is a true thing as a revived church. And the study tells us today it is pronounced as Philadelphia. With Philadelphia, we see an about face. We see a return to the word of God. To stand upon the word of God and to preach and to teach it. We see the congregation at the church in Philadelphia has survived for so many years before the Turks got involved. They insisted on God's holy word to be taught, to be preached. It was a revived church that was greatly missionary-minded. And you're going to see in this text today we've already read that Jesus loved this church so much they received no complaint they received no rebuke. So many other churches have done something so wrong that he rebuked them. But Philadelphia, the revived church, stood upon the word of God and receives no complaint, no rebuke. We'll get into that, but before we actually do, let's review the address given to the church at Philadelphia. Let's go back to verse 7. Notice in verse 7 that Jesus addresses the church in another unique manner. He says in verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. You may remember that each and every address, the very first verse given to the letter of the church, the very first verse always is the address. And every address we've had to each of the now six churches has been unique to that church. And here is another one that is unique in every, every possibly way it received at the Church of Philadelphia. And what it does by the address, it reveals two attributes of Jesus Christ that we know but can so easily take for granted. So let us reveal these two attributes and expand upon them today. That's noted in the address. The first one is this. That Jesus Christ has always been and always will be holy and true. The second attribute of Christ is that Jesus truly is the key. He's the only one who can grant admission to the kingdom. These two attributes we know, we love, we endure, but we so easily can take them for granted. So let's take this moment this morning to expand upon each of these two that's given in the address. 
Again, the first attribute, Jesus Christ has always been and will always be holy and true. J. Vernon McGee says he was holy at his birth. Jesus, holy at his birth. He was holy at his death, and he is holy today in his present priestly office. That is so completely true, entirely true. So much so that Scripture completely supports the idea of Jesus' holiness. At birth, in Luke 1.35, it says the child to be born will be called holy. At death, in Acts 2.27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption. The priestly office is mentioned in Hebrews 7.26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Many scriptures support the fact that Jesus is true enough holy. In fact, Jesus is a personified standard of moral excellence. Jesus is indeed holy and eternally righteous. There's no one like him. But not only is he holy, scripture also supports the fact that it's true. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then 1 John 5, 20, which says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Jesus Christ is not only truth, but all he says and does is complete conformity with who he is. Because he is genuine, he is not false, he is not fake, he is true, and he is holy. Now, as we make that observation, also make this observation. Note that this makes Jesus unlike us. Because Jesus, again, has always, he has always been holy and true. But us? We might tend to think that we can be holy and true, and we might even portray to others, even dare to suggest that we're holy and true. But in all honesty, we've never been holy and true. At least not without, and then not before we accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But as followers, we should present ourselves the best that we can. We're going to flaw because of our imperfections, but we should present ourselves the best that we can as holy and true. Like Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 5. He said, be imitators of God as beloved children. He says in verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. In verse 4, he says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Do we present ourselves as holy and true all the time? I don't know what any of us do. But we should imitate God and try the best that we can present ourselves as holy and true. Are we going to fail? Most likely because we're sinners. But we strive to present ourselves as holy and true. As Christians, holy and true, loving one another. We strive to be like Jesus. Because the point is here that Jesus Christ has always been and always will be holy and true. That's his first great attributes we see in the address. 
But notice there's a second address. You go back to the text in verse 2, I mean verse 7. Again, Jesus is the key. It says the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David. I mean, he's the only one. Jesus truly is the only one who can actually grant us admission to the eternal kingdom of God. The fact is this. No one is granted access to the Father except through Jesus. Which makes him, obviously, the key. I once had a sign that was in my office at the church that said, the key to heaven was hung on a nail. Amen? The key to heaven was hung on a nail. Admission, inheritance to the kingdom is not through any other way but through Jesus Christ. It's the, it's the focus of John 14, 6. It's a solid truth. We stand upon it. I don't, this is not new stuff. You know the only way through to God, the only way to the Father is through Jesus. This is not anything brand new. You already know this. But remarkably, not all people agree with that. Not all people agree with the fact that Jesus is the only way. In January 2018, the real story of Carlton Pearson was made into a movie. The movie is called Come Sunday. It was released initially in theaters, but with a mediocre response. So then, as often happens, Netflix picks it up, and they made it part of their viewing audience in April 2018. Which then is when I saw the trailer to the movie. She and I was going through Netflix, and I chasing out the same way. We like to get on Netflix and look at the trailers of various movies and not really land on anything. It was like channel surfing. You ever done channel surfing? Women, you may not relate, but men know what I'm talking about. We go channel surfing quite a bit to find out what's on. May not land on anything, but we go through different channels to find out what's available. And on Netflix, it's similar. They have all these different trailers of movies available. So we go through it a lot. Maybe if we find one we kind of like, we add it to our list for later viewing pleasure. And I was doing that one particular night. She and I together, she's getting quite frustrated with me because I'm doing that. But then all of a sudden landed on it. I looked at the trailer and thought, whoa, wait a minute. Let's back it up for just a moment. I added it to my list. Well, let's view this movie. Come Sunday. So by watching the trailer, it grabbed my attention. And I read the information attached to the trailer about the movie. And we decided it was worth a view. So as I began to watch the movie then, to my surprise, the movie was based upon the actual events of a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. As mentioned, it's the real story of Carlton Pearson. Well, Carlton Pearson was a Pentecostal preacher who was making a great name for himself. And he began to experience tremendous church growth as he preached the gospel, simply leading people to Christ. He just led people to Christ, and they all came to his church, and the church was exploding. But in the midst of the proclamation and the growth that he was experiencing at his church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, suddenly the movie turns. Something completely unexpected happened. Carlton Pearson, this once great Pentecostal preacher proclaiming the gospel, having this tremendous church growth, began to deviate from the word of God. He began to preach and teach universalism or inclusion. 
that all people can be saved regardless of accepting Jesus Christ. Now, universalism is a school of thought among some evangelicals that everyone will be saved. There's some preachers today that still teach this. You've got to be careful sometimes who you listen to. And they can restore to a right relationship with God without accepting Jesus Christ. It's the idea that God loves all people and does not and will not have anyone to suffer in torment and anguish in hell. That he loves you so much that he's not going to make you suffer. I'm thinking this particular point, well, why did Jesus come in the first place then? But that's the thought. That's the idea of universalism. That you don't have to accept Jesus, but God loves you so much that he just automatically includes you to the kingdom. Carlton Pearson, then this once great Pentecostal preacher teaching the gospel, having a tremendous church growth, at the height of his career, if you will, began to preach and teach the false gospel, this heresy. Essentially, he left the word of God, like what happened to Pergamum and Thyatira. He will, if you, if you will, he distorted the truth of the gospel. And it led to his downfall as well as the church. But note that as we use Carlton Peterson and his experience with the church as an example, that's not what's happened in Philadelphia. Please note in the text that the church of Philadelphia, they stood upon the Word of God. They returned to the Word of God. They preached and taught both the Word of God and the only true gospel that exists. That Jesus Christ came, He died, He arose, He ascended, and He is coming back. Now, how do I know it's true that the church in Philadelphia stood upon the Word of God, proclaimed the truthfulness? What's mentioned in verse 8? Where he tells them, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And oh, by the way, it's repeated again in verse 10 that they kept the word. As I've already stated, no one comes to the Father except for Jesus. That's John 14, 6. That truth reminded not just in John 14, 6, but repetitiously in Scripture. For example, 1 Timothy 2, 5. It says, for there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Likewise, what Luke records, the words of Peter in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there's salvation in no one else, for no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is clear. Scripture repeats it over and over again. There's not such a thing as universalism. There's such a thing as inclusion. You don't get to heaven based upon your good works, your good looks, or by any other means, except through Jesus. Salvation comes from Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God. That is the only way. So Carlton Pearson's proclamation of inclusion of universalism is false and led to the church's downfall. A slow death, it became a Sardis. And that is precisely what happens when a church or a pastor begins to entertain, accept, teach, and preach a false gospel and does not stand upon the Word of God. Essentially becomes an apostate church, and it has a downward spiral from that day on to slow death. That was exactly the trend that we saw happening 
as we continue to make our clockwise rotation through the seven churches, all the way through the third, fourth, and fifth churches, we continue to see that happen with Pergamum and Thyatira and then Sardis pronounces a dead church. That's the trend we saw happening. And it looked like it was going to get worse and worse. But then all of a sudden, we insert the church of Philadelphia who go back to the word of God and stand upon it and proclaim the truthfulness of the word. And it gives them an address then, initially in the letter, that has two great attributes that we cannot dismiss that we already know we focus on this morning. That Jesus Christ has always been and always will be holy and true. And that, yes, Jesus is the key, the only one, who can authorize or grant admission to the kingdom of heaven. But as we mentioned earlier, there's another unique feature of the letter besides the address. And we took a moment to expand upon the address because it gives us two great attributes. But again, because the church is revived, because it's a faithful church, they get no rebuke. They get no complaint. Go back to look at verses 8 through 10. And notice as we again look at verses 8 through 10, they only have commendations. There's no complaint given to them. And the commendation centers upon the concept of their obedience and their faithfulness. In verse 8, he starts with the familiar, I know your works. We see that a lot in each church. He has given them an open door. He talks about how they have little power or strength, but recognizes they kept the word. They did not deny his name. Verse 9, it says, those in the synagogue of Satan, those holding to the false teachings that we hear about, will ultimately come and bow down before your feet. And they will know that I've loved you. It's all great stuff for the church of Philadelphia. All because in verse 10, they kept the word. He will keep them from the hour of trial, also temptation that will come. And there's a lot of stuff written in verses 8 through 10 that would take us well over the next 30, 40 minutes to expand upon each component of all the things given to them of accommodation rather than rebuke. They get no condemnation. They get all commendation. And, and we can expand upon each of these things for the next 30 minutes. But notice that all centers upon obedience and faithfulness. Obedience and faithfulness is the essence of what they're doing at the church in Philadelphia. Which allows then the church to be revived, to be faithful, and receive a wonderful, beautiful praise and promise. And also a fitting conclusion for us today in a third point, which is this. That Christ desires us, us here as well, not just a church in Philadelphia. Christ desires us to exercise obedience and faithfulness. And oh, by the way, he'll reward those who do. Let me go back to verses 8 through 10 once more. Me, how else could you interpret what's written here? There's no rebuke again. Repetitiously, there's no rebuke, no condemnation. And because they've done everything wonderful to go back to the Word of God, he said, I will keep you from the hour of trial. I'll keep you from that temptation. Most likely referring to that great day of judgment that will be placed upon the earth in days to come. He will act against those who try to deter you. The synagogue of Satan, as is worded in here. Most likely, people who are your adversary to try to keep you from proclaiming the truthfulness. And he opens an open door you can freely go to boldly witness. 
and then he'll reward your efforts, your obedience, and your faithfulness. He'll reward you of your effort by keeping you from harm. You will not experience that judgment day, that great tribulation that we placed upon the earth. The Baptist Press commentary worded it this way. He said, a unique guarantee is given to this church. Because the believers maintain a living hope in the imminent appearing of Christ, who could come and deliver them from the persecutions, they were promised. They were promised total deliverance from the great tribulation. They would not have to experience it. They were given a promise to avoid that wrath that will suddenly come upon the earth without warning. The day, the time, and the hour is unknown. But they will avoid it. And so will we if we continue to practice obedience and faithfulness. So with that thought, their question then becomes this. Are you in present day in a position to receive such a guarantee to avoid the wrath? I mean, you are guaranteed to avoid all the wrath and judgment to come upon the earth if you have secured your eternal life and bliss by accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And he's the only way. He is the key. But if you are unsure or have not, then you will indeed be faced with the wrath to come. You will not be kept from the horrific wrath to be placed upon the earth. Now make sure we cover real quickly the wrath that be placed upon the earth. We don't have time to go through, but it's not conjecture. It's not make-believe. It's not false. It's not heresy. It's written in Revelation chapter 6 through 19 of all the things that will be done to the earth. There will be the series of seals and trumpets and bowls. Wrath to come like unseen before. And unless you come forward and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you'll be experiencing that judgment. There's a thing called the rapture. The rapture is when all the Christians disappear from the earth. And if you don't accept Christ, you'll be standing alone by yourself. Your family and friends may not be here anymore. That accepted Christ, they won't be here. You'll be standing all by yourself, faced to endure the wrath. There'll be intense in earthquakes. We have earthquakes, but never like we'll be there. Scorching sunlight. It gets hot here during the summer. Humidity, awful. But nothing like will be seen at that day. 100-pound hailstones. I can't even imagine that. All written in Revelation of what shall come for people who are left behind. The point is, though, the people of Philadelphia have been given that promise to avoid all that stuff. And we're given the exact same promise. That if we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we get to be excused from all that stuff. We'll be, in, we'll be in the heaven with the Father. We will not see, but be part of the wrath on the judgment of the earth. There's consequences coming for those who just flat out reject Jesus. But there's also the deliverance or promise to remove the, removed from that for those who do accept. The bottom line then really is this. By accepting Jesus Christ as Lord, You'll be safely kept in the great tribulation, the period, the time, the hour, when God will unleash his fury upon the earth. And that's a promise that we kept from it, not just for the church in Philadelphia, 
not just for a few Baptists here and there, not just for some Methodist Presbyterians, not just for denominations that adhere to the Word of God, but for all men, women, and children who have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the promise we have. The same promise given to the church in Philadelphia. Have you received Jesus Christ? Have you received your promise to be removed before the judgment? Father, well, the message today is quite simple. But one we should listen to, one we should pay attention to, because it tells us that, yes, there is judgment day coming. And as we practice ourselves like the church of Philadelphia, that we can have the promise given to us as it did to be removed and be gone before the judgment comes. Lord, I pray that for every person in this room to be prepared for that day. It's a horrible thought, Lord. We don't like to think about that day as it comes. We don't even like to think about the fact that we could be missing, but we even worse don't want to think about the fact that some of our loved ones could be left behind. So, Lord, today our reflection time will be upon those we love that maybe truly need to come to Christ or maybe recommit themselves. So, Lord, right now, before we have a reflection, we boldly come before you in prayer. And I pray, Lord, you begin to enter to the heart of those who may be listening later or here today or whatever way they're watching and viewing. Lord, I just pray that you'll stir greatly in the hearts of those today. They would truly come to accept Christ. They would receive that promise to be removed before the wrath comes. We're thankful for that message telling us that today. We want to pray for our loved ones then to be ready, be prepared. The only way to be prepared is to come and accept Jesus Christ. Again, he is the key. So thank you today, Lord, for how this message focuses on that point. It emphasizes that truth. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Stand with me this morning.